Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Saturday Burnt Toast and Coffee Show with apologist William Hemsworth on the Four Persons Network. William is passionate about teaching the faith. He is a convert that attended a Baptist seminary. He is a father and a catechist that will encourage you to live the faith, evangelize, and defend it. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. Once again, the phone number to call into the show is 515-602-9655. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Burnt Toast and Coffee Show here on the Four Persons Network. I hope everyone is having a fantastic Saturday morning, fantastic Saturday, wherever you may be. I'm kind of excited about today's show. I really love the Old Testament, and it's a shame that the Old Testament is not studied as much as the New, because it is still sacred scripture. And of course, at Mass every day, you know, there's a reading from the Old Testament, and there's a reading from the Gospel. Of course, if it's Sunday or a holy day, holy day of obligation, for example, uh, we have a a reading, most likely from one of the letters of uh, St. Paul. But today we're going to discuss the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua is a great book. There's a lot of great material in there. But for some, for some in our society, it is scrutinized quite a bit. So we're going to get to that in just a moment. But first, I I got an email. They wanted to know an update of how I'm doing with my recovery. Guys, my recovery, I had knee replacement surgery on October 23rd. Recovery is going amazingly well. I'm only two degrees away from full flexion in that knee. Um, they have me doing squats and lunges already, uh, exercise bike, light weights, and I haven't used the cane since Monday, so it is going really well. I can't complain whatsoever, and I am I'm so happy that when through I'm so happy things are going the way they are. But let's go ahead. Let's get to the Book of Joshua. So, the Book of Joshua is a book. Let's be honest, many have not taken the time to study this book. It doesn't matter what part of doesn't matter where you are. So there's not a whole lot of there's not a whole lot of homilies in the Catholic Church pre, preached on Joshua because it's not really a book that is in the in the readings. I mean, there's some passages here and there, but really not a whole lot. 
and outside of Catholicism, not a whole lot either. Except for Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, which, you know, as make a choice. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay? So, Joshua has become a battering ram of sorts for a group known as the New Atheists, who point, who point to its context as proof of a God that is genocidal, egocentric, and because of that, can't possibly exist. Okay. Now, these allegations about the book of Joshua are nothing new. For example, Marcion, the early church heretic, saw the God portrayed in Joshua and, and other parts of the Old Testament as antithetical to the God displayed in the New Testament. He took so much objection that he said that there was two totally different gods in the Bible. Now, the immorality of God, as they say, these new atheists say, displayed gives today to what new atheism calls the immorality of God. Now, this assessment is not only unfair, but it's grossly incorrect. Totally incorrect. Now, we have to address these issues. We just can't gloss over them. To gloss over them would damage the faith in the long run. And to some extent, that's happened in the past, although there are many who have not glossed over them. They have gone over it. So we're going to go over some of these issues today. These concerns have very real answers that could be seen if one is willing to do the work. You see, and that's the thing. In our culture, we're not really wanting to do the work. We're not wanting to do the research. We're wanting to get our theology from memes and things like that. Now, don't get me wrong. I love memes. I post them all the time. But sometimes we need to dig deeper. Joshua is a treasure in the Old Testament, and it acts as a, a hinge between the five books of Moses, known as the Pentateuch, and the rest of the Old Testament. It is a book that fulfills the promise of Yahweh to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about the promised land. Now, the reason I'm doing this show is to look at the background issues, those theological themes, and even those some of those critical interpretive issues that are present in this book. And so we're going to look at what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some we're going to look at some biblical historical history. Uh, we're, going some, we're going to look at some archaeology. We're going to look at some ancient Near East aspects to better understand the backgrounds in Joshua. All right. So let's get to this biblical historical background first. The book of Joshua begins with a recap telling of the death of Moses and a commissioning of Joshua as the new leader of the people. The text, takes, the text takes place about 40 years, of after about 40 years of wandering through the desert, and after that previous generation of Israelites had passed away. Now, you may recall that because of their disobedience, the Lord said that the transgressing generation would never see the promised land. Uh, the new generation, the generation of Joshua, was in training uh, during this time. So Joshua learned from Moses. Um, he observed the miracles of the Lord, and he was being trained to be a new Moses. So if you really want to take – you want to, this could be seen as evident, Old Testament evidence for apostolic succession in a way as well. So he was being trained to be the new leader of the people of Israel. And so it is placed after the Pentateuch as a fulfillment of God's 
promise regarding the promised land. Now, some scholars had previously thought that made up the sixth book of what they called the Hexateuch because of its similarities to Deuteronomy. Okay, and that was actually the prominent theory up until um, a Protestant by the name of Dr. Martin Noth proposed what is known now as uh, Deuteronomistic history. Now, according to Dr. Noth, there was a Deuteronomist editor and compiler who compiled the modern prophets during the Babylonian exile. And that's actually a, a theory that's propounded by the, in the New Jerome biblical, the Catholic New Jerome biblical commentary as well. So it's not just a Protestant um, uh, thought. A lot of uh, Catholic biblical scholars actually agree with that. Okay, so this editor, this Deuteronomist editor, uh, drew on existing sources and traditions that existed. So oral tradition, guys, oral tradition. Okay, Joshua was part of this process. And so there's evidence within Joshua that show that it was written over time, maybe in some blocked periods. It wasn't like in a uniform fashion. Okay, there's some there's some evidence of that. And so, therefore, Joshua um, possibly may not be the sole author as tradition suggests. Now, obviously, he did write part of it, though. Okay, this editor compiled the existing Joshua source material and that of the prophet, some of the prophets, so known as the former prophets, to present a uniform history of Israel. And so Joshua can be broken up in two halves. Uh, we have chapters 1 through 12, which are the conquest narratives that have the miraculous crossing of the Jordan, the siege of Jericho, and other battles in Canaan. And then there's chapters 13 to 24. It's a division of the land among the tribes of Israel. And so it is a crucial book that not only sees the fulfillment of God's promise, but lays the backdrop for what happens in the rest of the Old Testament. All right, so let's look at some archaeological material. This is where some of the uh, controversy comes in, if you will. So biblical scholarship was heavily influenced uh, by the rise of archaeology in the mid-20th century. And Joshua is putting forth some historical events. And so it makes sense if archaeology was able to corroborate them. So based on internal evidence in Joshua... So archaeologists um, place the events during the late Bronze Age. Archaeology can corroborate biblical evidence, and there are some times when it runs counter to it. So the relationship between Joshua and archaeology can be mixed a little bit. Jericho is perhaps the best example of archaeology in Joshua. Archaeologists almost universally accept Jericho as what is known as Tel es Sultan the town of Tel es Sultan. Archaeology shows that the city was destroyed and rebuilt a few times before the conquest in Joshua. In the early Bronze Age, it saw cataclysmic earthquakes that destroyed the walls and towers of the city. The city was rebuilt, and in the Middle Bronze Age, was destroyed by the Egyptians. By the Late Bronze Age, which was the proposed time of Joshua, the city walls... Although they were there, they were almost completely gone as well. And the city was laying upon ruins of itself. Okay, So another archaeological anomaly for Joshua is the city of Ai. So it's A-I. Not artificial intelligence. It's literally A-I. That's the town, Ai. Archaeologists believe that the ancient city of Ai is now identified 
as et tel. The challenge from archaeological standpoint is that et tel was not inhabited during the proposed time of Joshua in the late Bronze Age. Not only was it uninhabited, but possibly even unfortified. Some archaeologists thought that it was a, maybe a military outpost <coughs> Excuse me, for the nearby city of Bethel. So that's maybe a possibility as well. So these archaeological clues do lead to the issue of how Joshua should be interpreted. Okay? Does it present history or does it does it intend to okay, let me rephrase this. It does present history, but does so in a matter that's not straightforward. In other words, not literal. The archaeological anomalies do not disprove Joshua, like some will claim. Cities in the ancient world rebuilt over destroyed cities many times. Many, many times. And that's the case with Jericho. And others were abandoned for centuries at a time, such as I, which would lead to erosion of evidence. And so this has led some scholars to conclude that Joshua is what we call a narrative history. So it's not a literal history, but it's a narrative history. It's a history that leads us to, for, to look at the theological underpinnings as more important than the history that's being presented. All right, so let's look at some ancient Near Eastern material. Because we've got to remember that ancient Israel was an ancient Near Eastern society. And so we can't so, to, to understand Joshua, we need to look at the genre of ancient Near Eastern literature. So, it's not prudent to read ancient history from a modern historical lens. We just can't do that. Joshua falls closely in line with other conquest narratives of the ancient Near East. And so, in Joshua, God's role with his people is the underlying theme of its history. Let me just say that again. In Joshua, God's role with his people is the underlying theme of its history. And that was very common in other conquest narratives of the ancient Near East. All right? These ancient Near Eastern texts also give us more information to what is happening in the region. One of the main themes in Joshua is the conquest of Canaan. So who is Canaan? What is Canaan? Texts from the ancient Near East show us that they were not a unified nation but a collection of city-states. So the, Armana, the Amarna letters, for example, show that the region was disorganized, and there were great periods of social unrest. The Canaanites were vassals of the Egyptians, meaning that they paid homage to Egypt and acknowledged their superiority. Though Canaan was a vassal to Egypt, though they were vassal, Egypt did not keep them in tight control. Vassal treaties were very common in the ancient Near East, and they're really representative of blessings and curses. And this, this was also made very clear several times in Joshua, even as early as chapter 1, verse 8. So for, for example, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 lays out blessings and prosperity for obedience, and in the case of Akan later on, curses for disobedience. Akan is a figure that shows up later in the book of Joshua. This would have been fully understood among the people. Joshua chapter 2 hints at a relationship with Egypt when flax, okay, that 
that crop, the crop flax. So flaxseed, for example, when flax is mentioned. The Gezer calendar, G-E-Z-E-R, mentions that it is harvested in February. Flax was not grown in the Canaanite region, but was imported from Egypt and was used to make linen and rope. There are also clues regarding the time of conquest in other documents of the ancient Near East. For example, the Annals of Ramses, Ramses III, give us some idea about the region, the timeline of events, and even how to understand the language used. Okay, there are two timelines as to when the events of Joshua occurred. One theory in 1450 BC and the other is around 1200 BC. Okay, so 1450 was probably the height of Egypt's power. And so if that were the case, Egypt would likely come to the aid of their Canaanite vassals. But Joshua gives no record of this. But in 1200, Egypt fell, and the Canaanite city-states were all on their own. The city-states had small armies, if any army, and would have been vulnerable to conquest. So kind of based on that information, the 1200 date is more probable for the dating of Joshua. So an easy fight would mean that the Lord had delivered the land. Okay, you see, the Annals of Ramses III also assist us with some hard questions. So many times in the annals, the Pharaoh says that he completely annihilates opposing armies and peoples. These regions that were supposedly annihilated were Turkey, Syria, and Cyprus. Now, was there a mass genocide that wiped these ethnicities off the earth? Not at all. That correlation can also be made in Joshua with the supposed genocide of the Canaanite people that the new atheists all too often come at Christians with. It was the language of victory, guys. Total annihilation was a language of victory and did not mean extermination. It did not mean extermination. So let's look at some theological themes. So the book of Joshua is a, again, I've mentioned this before, it's a pivotal book in the Old Testament. It's often called the hinge since it comes after the Pentateuch and introduces the story of Israel that that proceeds through the rest of the Old Testament. Joshua is a book that is often misunderstood. Now, for those of us in a more liturgical tradition, like us Catholics, right, we hardly hear it read during Mass. Now, if one is from a non-liturgical tradition, like Protestants, for example, non-denominationals. They may never even read from this book. Now, there are parts of this book that are difficult to fathom. Okay, I want to get that straight. Okay, the charge of of genocide, for example, is one that is often levied on the book of Joshua. I've mentioned that a couple times already. But is that what the book is trying to communicate? That's not the case. Now, however, this is one of the theological issues that has been wrestled with with the, throughout the history of the church. Other theological themes, in addition to the accusation of genocide, okay, are the fulfillment of God's promise and the divine leadership of Joshua. Now, there are some secondary themes as well. But God's fulfillment of God's promise, the divine leadership of Joshua, and the accusation of genocide are the primary ones. So understanding these theological themes unlocks the book of Joshua and makes it a book 
that is crucial to the Old Testament. So a proper understanding will dismiss these negative stereotypes that occur when the book is read through a modern lens. Because we can't read historical books like Joshua through a modern historical lens because that's not how it was written. So let's look at genocide, genocide in Joshua. The charge of genocide being labeled on the book of Joshua, it's, like I said, I said a couple of times, it's nothing new. It's something that goes back to the beginnings of the Christian era. Who is God and how does he interact with his people? And so when Marcion read scripture, he concluded that the God of the Old Testament could not possibly be the God of the new. Many church fathers rightly saw this view as heretical. So, for example, St. Justin Martyr called Marcion, called Marcion a heretic. Okay? Justin Martyr called Marcion such and affirmed the entire Old Testament as the word of God and infallible scripture. Many church fathers, such as St. Irenaeus, did the same. Irenaeus said that his two-God view is heretical because the God of the Old Testament is the same as the new, through whom all good comes. Surely Yahweh, as depicted in Joshua, is good and provides for the needs of the Israelites. However, there are many verses that cause concern for readers. So let's look at one. One such verse is Joshua chapter 6, verse 21, which says, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Now, to the everyday English reader, this looks like proof of the genocide accusation. Now, many commentaries, many Bible commentaries, at least older ones, almost seem to go along with this. The slaughter is justified in many as a way to cleanse idolatry and immorality from the land. But that's not the whole story. And these questions can be answered with some digging into language and history. The Hebrew word for destruction used here and in other places in Joshua is the word harem, H-E-R-E-M. The term is translated as destruction, but that can be a little misleading because words don't always translate to English correctly, okay? It is unlikely that the people, that the Israelite people entered Canaan and just started slaughtering people. That's not, that's really unlikely. The ancient rabbis actually taught the use of the word came with it terms for peace, they would only be destroyed if these terms were not accepted. Now, another explanation is from an economic point of view. The Canaanites may have been lower on the economic totem pole than their Hebrew counterparts. As a result, those who did fight, those who did not fight, were assimilated into the culture of the Israelites. By the time that the Israelites invaded Canaan, Canaan was a shell of its former self. They were a vassal of Egypt, but Egypt had fallen. It was not uncommon for a stronger economic power to assimilate a lesser. So from an ancient Near East perspective, this language of total destruction on a foreign power was very common. Treaties of the ancient Near East routinely show similar characteristics to what we read in Joshua. Archaeological evidence from Assyria, for example, shows the goddess Ishtar, being summoned to wipe out an opposing force who rejected the treaty. The Code of Hammurabi does the same in a succession treaty to make enemy territory a, quote, wasteland. So a look at this evidence shows that the language was common at the time, 
and it did not involve genocide in any way. It just meant that those people assimilated to the conquering group. Genocide myth debunked. So let's look at divine leadership of Joshua. So this is another theological theme in Joshua, and it involves Joshua himself and his divine appointment to leadership over the people. This is made clear at the beginning at the beginning of Joshua, but it started at the end of Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9, Moses laid hands on Joshua, and he was filled with spirit and wisdom. Guys, apostolic succession. That's how bishops are ordained. All right, anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. All right, the Lord speaks to Joshua in the first nine verses. The Lord tells Joshua to take command of the people. He will be with Joshua as he was with Moses. And the land that was promised to Moses is the land that Joshua is about to take. So what happens next is a mini recapitulation of the events of the 40 years in the wilderness. So in Joshua 1.19, the people declare their dedication to Joshua just as they did at the beginning of their trek with Moses. The people understood that without courageous leadership, leadership that was inspired by Yahweh, that the mission to take the land would fail. In Joshua chapter 3, Joshua miraculously leads the people across the Jordan River on dry land. This was done so the people could see that the Lord was with Joshua, just as he had been with Moses when they crossed the Red Sea. Chapter 5 is also significant when it comes to the divine leadership of Joshua. The generation of Joshua had not been circumcised as the generation earlier had. Joshua was called Joshua was called on to circumcise the males that were born on the journey to the promised land. This was done to renew the covenant. And Joshua was called on as the leader to make it happen. And so let's get to the land. The fulfillment of the promised land is another theological theme of Joshua. The people needed a leader after Moses, and this was fulfilled in Joshua. The entering of the promised land was the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though the previous generation rebelled and turned from God many times, the Lord kept his promise. The new generation is about to enter the land of promise, though there were many failings. Though God is with them, this would not stop the people from failing shortly thereafter, what in the case of Akan in uh, chapter 6. Now, once that situation is rectified, the Lord once again fulfills his promise and assists with conquering the land. So the theological implications of these three themes that we talked about, they're ones that we can recognize today. Is our God a God of genocide? Nope, not at all. But he is a God of justice. And there is a consequence for sin. That consequence is death. But for those who follow, repent, and believe, they are assimilated into the family of God, just as some of the Canaanites were. The book of Joshua also, show, also shows the need for strong leadership in the Christian community. History is littered with bad leadership that has made a barren wasteland of many places. Leadership that is dedicated to the will of God is crucial to the people of God. 
Lastly, the fulfillment of the promise of the promised land shows that God is not fickle like us humans are. Though he calls us to a higher standard, he is with us every step of the way. From a typological standpoint, this is fulfilled in Jesus, who leads us across the figurative Jordan River into the kingdom of God through faith in him. Let's move on to some critical interpretive issues. Did Yahweh call for a complete genocide of the Canaanite people? And guys, I keep coming back to this topic because this is the biggest charge levied against the book of Joshua and against how God is not a good God or how God does not exist. So I revisit it in from a couple different lenses here to help you understand that that's not what Joshua is talking about. And so you could answer those critics. Again, genocide is not the case here. Let's look at some language in the in let's look at the, some language in the book and the genre of the book of Joshua. When Joshua uses the Hebrew term harem in chapter six, verse twenty-one, and other places, it is used in a very specific way. This is a use of hyperbole and was common in ancient Near East conquest narratives. In the eyes of Yahweh, so here, here here's what verse six twenty-one. Chapter 6, verse 21 says, In the eyes of Yahweh, the ways of the Canaanites were sinful and idolatrous. So in these conquest narratives, the God fights on behalf of the people. But something interesting happens in Joshua. You see, the Canaanites were not destroyed, as we read later on in Joshua. But they were assimilated into the culture. Yeah, you heard that right. The accusation of genocide is actually debunked in the book of Joshua itself when the book of Joshua says that they, some Canaanites were assimilated into the culture. So those who levy that account actually don't read through the full book of Joshua to get their point. Anyway, let's move on. All right. There's some disagreement among scholars as to how this is done. Some say that they lived a life of servitude, while others say it was more of a political dominion. So... It, it, however, it does appear that more conservative scholars lead towards servitude, while more liberal ones lean towards uh, the political aspect. Both are probable. Maybe both happen. But one thing is clear, that eventually the Israelites assimilated some aspects of Canaanite theology. One, one other critical interpretive issue to be discussed here, although there's, there's many more, is the dating of the book of Joshua. And we touched on this very briefly a moment ago. This is an interpretive issue because it was bearing on whether the failed conquest happened in 1450 B.C. or in the 1200s. That issue is the book of Exodus itself. All right, so, but for that, we actually have to go into 1 Kings. You see how the Old Testament is kind of connected here already. 1 Kings 6.1 says the, that the Exodus took place 480 years before the building of the temple was commenced. However, Hebrew slaves built the Egyptian cities of uh, Pethom and Ramses. So the name of Ramses does not appear prior to Ramses I. So that makes that later dating a little more probable. The later dating would also mean that the land was more vulnerable to conquest. If the dating were earlier, this would be at the height of the Egyptian power. And because Canaan was a vassal of Egypt, Egypt would come to their aid and be a bad scene. All right, so Egypt in the, 12, in the 1200s was on the verge of collapse, and it was severely weakened. 
So the Canaanites were on their own, and were, as I said a moment ago, were a collection of city-states. This made it ripe to be delivered to the people by Yahweh, and land was being delivered by a and land being delivered by a deity, a deity was very common in ancient Near East literature. All right, so let's get back to the genocide piece. Again, hammering this home in different ways. Are the people of Israel guilty of genocide? Did God mandate that? Though I discussed this under theological themes earlier on, it's also a critical interpretive issue. So, in other words, it's a critical it's critical to the interpretation of Joshua. When reading Joshua and any other book of the Old Testament, we must realize that it is an ancient text written to a culture totally different from our own. With that in mind, a look at Joshua itself and a comparison to non-biblical sources will be helpful here. Joshua 11, Joshua 11, verse 20 says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be utterly destroyed and should receive no mercy and be exterminated as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay. This is strong language. Strong, strong language. And like I stated a moment ago under theological themes, it suggests what accusers of Joshua say. That God ordered genocide, but is that what happened? Now, a few, few minutes ago, I discussed the Hebrew, the Hebrew word harem, H-E-R-E-M. But but to look at the interpretive issue deeply, we must look to non-biblical sources as well, because it is, it is really helpful here. The language was pretty standard in the ancient Near East. Okay, this theme of destruction was standard, fair. In fact, this very same language was uh, levied toward Israel from the Moabites. Okay, so... Shamash, the deity of Moab, said the Moabite king said to the Moabite king to go and take Israel. The king then wrote, quote, "So I went by night and attacked it from daybreak until noon, and I took it and I killed everyone in it, seven thousand men, boys, women, girls, and slave women, for I had put it under the ban from Ashtar Chamosh." All right, so that's from a outside biblical source, from a deity to a king and all this stuff, right? And so we see that it was common language among kings and deities to say that a society was extinguished. So from these two accounts, we can reach two conclusions here. One, the Israelites were not exterminated, as the Moabite king had stated. Okay, If that were the case, biblical revelation would have ceased at the time, as Israel would no longer be in existence. We would have the five books of Moses, and that is it. Now, secondly... We can see from Scripture directly that the Canaanites were not extinguished. Joshua chapter 13 describes how part of the land were left unconquered. In fact, Joshua chapter 13 verses 1 through 8 makes an account of the land that was left unconquered in all directions. And so either Joshua is contradicting himself in the span of two chapters, or there's another answer. This is the use of hyperbole. But it does not discount that a partial extermination had taken place. Partial does not mean total, like Joshua's accused of here. All right, so again, part of this explanation coincides with what I said when I discussed theological themes. A nation just did not enter another nation and start slaughtering people. Didn't happen. Terms of peace were extended, 
and if not accepted, that battle would commence. Now, there's little doubt that there were some, if not many, Canaanites killed. Just like there were probably a lot of Israelites killed as well. However, the reason that Canaanites were quote-unquote extinguished in some areas is because they were assimilated into the way of life of the Hebrew people. So sometimes, sometimes along with the accusation of genocide, is the accusation of ritual violence. Okay, so within Joshua and other non-biblical ancient Near East sources, um, depict this. So, for example, Joshua chapter 8, verse 29 states, And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening, and at the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and cast it at the entrance of the city and raised over it a heap of stones, which stands there to this day. End quote. Now, to our modern senses, this seems like something that is cruel and unbecoming of a holy people. As with our previous example, the Israelites are not doing anything out of the ordinary for their time. This type of ritual violence came in many forms and served many different purposes. In sacred scripture, we read of one such act done by the, Bambal- of the, by the Babylonians to those in Judah. And this is accounted for in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 7, which says, quote, They slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put up the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in fetters and took him to Babylon. Quote. The point is that that ritual of violence was not the point is that ritual violence was not accidental and was a planned event with an end result in mind. So in the case of Zedekiah in Second Kings, it was meant to show dishonor and conquest. At the time of Joshua, the concept of kingship was held through the very body of the king. The king was not only the visible ruler, but was a representative of the sovereign deity of that land. So for example, in the ancient Akkadian Empire, the body of the king was presented okay, as viral, alluring, and as someone who can impose his will politically and through expansion. What the death of the king, what the death of the king meant was that there was a shift of the deity to someone else. When we relate this accounting to Joshua, we see a new picture come up. It was not simply the exposition of a dead king on a tree. It was a shift of political and sovereign power. The gods of the Canaanites and their chosen king are no longer in control. But those who are in control are Yahweh and his people. So what about the heap of stones that the Israelites raised over the body of the now deceased king? This is a depiction of ancient warfare in the ancient Near East. To understand this further, let's look at the, Akkadian, the ancient Akkadian kingdom. Mesopotamian monuments reference a particular battle and provide visual and contextual context. They were erected at the site of victory for all to see and to remind the conquered peoples of what happened. We know from archaeology that these monuments were freestanding, large, and they were roughly hewn. So the most common stone for these were limestone, but basalt and diorite were also used in the region. In some instances, these monuments were placed at the gate of a city. We have many examples from, the, from this time of these monuments from Mesopotamia that are covered in cuneiform script. Joshua 8.29 does not tell us if there was anything written on these heap of stones, but it was a common custom in the ancient Near East to do something like that. It is a safe assumption that something similar would have occurred to show the change of the land from Canaan 
to the promised land. So, the book of Joshua is one that's been puzzling people for centuries. Like I said, it's rarely read. Very small portions are read in mass. It's not a book that's highly studied. Okay, but we can't understand it if we read it from the context of our, the modern era. It has to be read in the context that it was written in. There was a lot of history contained in the book, but its message is primarily theological. Theological history looks at the events of Joshua through the intervention of Yahweh and through the perception of faith. The Lord promised Abraham descendants that would be as numerous as the stars. Yahweh promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a land filled with milk and honey. The people were rescued from slavery in Egypt, but questioned God. Yet God still fulfilled his promise, and the new generation crossed, miracul crossed miraculously. They crossed the Jordan to enter the promised land. They recommitted to the covenant, the covenant when the males were circumcised, and they set about their conquest. Remember that Joshua was written for an ancient people. We're reading it in the 21st century. As a result, there's a tendency to place our presuppositions into it. What were the people familiar with? What were the customs? When we look at the societies of the ancient Near East, we see a clearer picture about the events that happened in Joshua. What is apprehensible to us was the world in which they were familiar and the world in which they were living, obviously. When studying Joshua, there's going to be hard questions that emerge. Those questions need to be answered, and I hope I did so today. We are charged by Scripture in 1 Peter 3.15 to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Joshua is Scripture. It is hard. But we must study to show ourselves approved, as 1 Timothy 3.16 says. To not take the time to properly study Joshua and to assist with a better understanding of its contents is a great disservice. It's not only a disservice to the person asking the question, but it's a disservice to the church. It's a disservice to Christianity. Someone may be struggling with their faith and come across these hard passages. We owe it to them and our Lord to give a proper response. The answers are there. Joshua is as much a tale of a God who demands justice as well as a God who is faithful to his people. They messed up over and over again, but God stayed true to his covenant. Like then, God will stay true to his promises now. He hates sin. He demands justice. And he's rich in mercy. And we see that in the history of Israel. All right, guys. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Please share this episode for those who may be struggling with some of these hard passages. Share the work that we're doing here on The Four Persons. And uh, have a blessed Advent. God bless you all.